Hello, everyone. It's May 12th, 2020. This week, the two big topics are China's most recent step toward a bigger and better crude vehicle. And then we're talking to Dan Hegel of Blue Canyon Technologies, a very cool company. He's going to tell us what they've been up to lately. So let's get going and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 260 of the Auto Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. We had a near uh, a near Earth object pass really close by Earth. So this is the closest pass for or the closest pass for I think two or three years. Um, the object mm. was uh, 2020 JJ. So that tells you that we didn't discover it until this year. We didn't really see it very early. It passed by Earth on on Monday the fourth. So when this show comes out, it'll be two Mondays ago. Um, and that's also the discovery date. So I don't know, I don't know at what point we saw it, but I have a sneaking suspicion we didn't see it until it passed by us. But, uh, it's about the size of a pickup. It got within, uh, what, 7,000 kilometers? Yeah, that is pretty close. It's estimated to be between 2.7 and 6 meters in diameter, yeah. it says, which is a pretty yeah, big, so we have not gotten margin. very many observations in. All right. Um, and its orbit is really interesting. So it's inclined, I mean, uh, you know, interesting in that it passed close to the Earth because it's, uh, it's, or it's, uh, aphelion is way out past Mars's orbit. So, uh, 2.1 AU. And its perihelion is just barely inside the Earth's orbit at 0.9 AU. Um, so its period is a year and 10 months. And then it's inclined at 11 degrees. So, you know, this thing rarely ever actually comes near Earth. Uh, you know, it go, it goes by Earth's orbit every, you know, every two years. But the fact that we had such a close encounter is, is pretty interesting. So the published orbit, I'm assuming is its post, its post encounter orbit. And I wonder, it, it went past our South Pole. So I wonder if we pulled the inclination down a little bit. But yeah, anyway, really darn close. We don't get those close passes that often. Yeah, this was a pretty cool fact. So it's part of the uh, Apollo group, yep. which, uh, you know, included uh, the Chelyabinsk uh, yep. meteor from 2013, which is like yep. spectacular as far as well-documented. <laughs> yeah, so Chelyabinsk was like 60 meters in diameter. So this is a tenth of that size. So we're, you know, not talking uh, a city destroyer, but definitely a, a good light show. China had its Long March 5B launch uh, about a week ago, and it was a success, and they had a space capsule launched, and it also has returned successfully. You know, I don't, I didn't keep tabs on it, because I kind of, this is kind of like flown by me, you know? They have a crew capsule, but this is a, a much bigger, or not a much bigger, but you know, a bigger and better one, and somehow I missed it, and plus the launch vehicle, very impressive as well, um, which we'll talk about that in a second. So, yeah, that was pretty remarkable, I have to say. Yeah, to, to be clear, this was an uncrewed flight. Right, yeah. yeah. So uncrewed, but a vehicle that could be crewed yeah. in yeah. the future. Yeah, so this was a Long March 
and the, the specific variant was the CZ-5B. That's the name of this variant. And the cool thing about it, the interesting thing was that uh, the core stage did not have a second stage or like an upper stage. So mm. uh, this whole core essentially was flown into orbit, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well. <laughs> right. So you had, you know, a couple of boosters on the side and then those carried the whole first stage into orbit plus the spacecraft as well as a little uh, heat shield experiment. Mm. So yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, so uh, they uh, launched these uh, Long March 5s out of um, uh, Wenchang uh, Satellite Launch Center. So these are not getting dumped over villages, but rather um, they launch over the South China Sea. And so this is in uh, uh, Hainan, which is like the island if you go and look at like as far south as you can go in China. And uh, yeah, so you were saying before how you weren't following, you know, all this too closely. And I mean, I wasn't either. And before kind of refreshing myself with, you know, uh, the news, all I could remember is that there was like some issues with like a second stage at some point. You know, during one of the earlier launches, I think it had to do with a pump or something. And so that was kind of why I was a little surprised that this was uh, no second stage on this one here. They decided to just kind of have the core and then a bunch of boosters on there. And so, yeah, the cores, so the cores used in uh, two hydrogen engines, and then they've got the uh, eight kerosene boosters, which are a little more powerful. Yeah, it's pretty cool because I'm not familiar with China using too many hydrogen engines. Um, When was the last instance of that? It seems that usually it's like solids or maybe Carolox, but hydrogen, mm -hmm. not too common. So that mm -hmm. kind of surprised me. If I didn't know better, I would say that this is the first Hydrolox engine, but I don't think that it was. I think it's the first time maybe on, on a Long March 5, maybe, because I know it was, it was a first uh, in some way. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I think I think I I think um actually been using a lot of uh, hypergals. Mm -hmm. So this can have a second stage plus um it can also have an optional third stage. So I mean that is something that they can do. Um, but I guess yeah they got rid of the second stage maybe because like you said they had some issues with it before so they just you know said well you know screw that we'll just put the whole thing into orbit. And, and for context right that you know having this second and third stage is ultimately right. Uh, among the other things that this uh, vehicle is supposed to do um, is that it's going to launch basically uh, uh, Taikonauts to the moon eventually, right? That's kind of one of the uh, one of the reasons why this was a pretty big deal. You know, this is the you know their previous spacecraft was kind of like a Soyuz essentially um, that would take you know crewed uh, Chinese missions uh, to lower orbit, but now you know this is the Orion-looking kind of Chinese uh, spacecraft. So you'll, you'll probably will need that second and third stage if you're going to try to get to the moon. Uh, let me just uh, correction burn myself here. Apparently, yeah, so this is not intended for their sort of uh, next generation crew vehicle, but rather um, just to kind of test it, I guess, because mm -hmm. that was kind of the big theme was testing the high speed reentry. But uh, yeah, I guess the 921 launcher, uh, which is under development, is going to be the one to take Taikonauts to the moon. So. so the crew capsule that they launched, that was a 14 ton vehicle, which can carry up to six or seven crew, but I think that normally they would probably just put three in there and then they could put 500 kilograms of cargo. So that seems like a pretty reasonable configuration. And they want it to be re reusable for up to 10 flights, which seems pretty ambitious. The heat shield is actually replaceable. So I assume that in that instance, they're talking about the actual main heat shield on the bottom of the actual spacecraft, right? Mm. And that that's going to be replaced each time. So it just means it's not a, a reusable material. That makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, Sam in the chat says it also pops off. So it does uh, propulsive landing. Oh, they use an airbag landing. That's yeah, right. They get the yeah, airbag. yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. There are some good photos of uh, of the capsule landed with its airbags. So the variant of this spacecraft that was launched, because there's actually two of them, 
a Leo version and a Deep Space version. This one was actually the Deep Space Beyond Leo version of the capsule. So the crew capsule version is four, is 14 tons, but the the uh, Deep Space version is 21.6 tons. Right. So being the you know Beyond Leo version, kind of the what sounds like the main uh, primary. Uh, objective of this demo mission was to test how the capsule does in a high-speed re-entry, right, to kind of simulate a moon return. And so um, it wasn't the only thing on there. There was also um, another inflatable heat shield vehicle that was launched with it, and that malfunctioned, but there wasn't really any information about the uh, malfunction other than just there was that it was operating abnormally during its return, this inflatable uh, heat mm-hmm. shield. But as for the Beyond Leo crew vehicle, you know, after two days and 19 hours in orbit, it fired its uh, retros, it deployed two deceleration chutes, and then its three main parachutes, like you mentioned before, uh, Ben, right? It's got the airbags, so it went and landed in uh, northwestern China. Uh, hard landing. A land landing? I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> but, um, yeah, and so uh, the way it tried to get up to speed, right, the way you do that is you just increase the apogee of your orbit. And so it did um, seven orbit raising maneuvers, and so it got as far as uh, 8,000 kilometers from the Earth, uh, which is 5,000 miles. Pretty far out there, and uh, yeah. Came back in, made it in one piece. So getting back to that first stage that was left in orbit, that first stage was actually left in low Earth orbit, obviously. So that was in a 152 by 270 kilometer orbit, which means it's going to come back pretty quickly or pretty soon. So by the time this show comes out, it should have already re-entered. So this is actually the largest thing to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere since the Site 7 space station in 1991. I didn't know that, but that's, <gasps> yeah, so this is a big chunk of metal. Most of it should completely burn up, but there are some engine components that might not. Isn't that crazy? Keep an eye out. So we just got two short and sweets this week, and what would those be? First up, next big step completed for Martian rover. NASA's Perseverance rover, along with its helicopter, now named Ingenuity, has been successfully integrated into both its sky crane and back shell as launch preparations continue. These milestones now put the rover into its launch configuration. Over the next few weeks, sterilized sampling tubes will be installed, followed by the 14.9-foot wide heat shield. Full assembly should be completed in June, with its launch still on track for July 17th. Next up, SN4 takes a big step towards flight. So the current Starship prototype passed a critical static fire test this week. The vehicle was pressurized up to 7.5 bar, and it fired its single Raptor engine. A second static fire took place a few days later, this time feeding from the fuel header tank. In a few weeks, Elon Musk says no more methane flares will be required as the ground tank pressures will be managed by recondensers instead of vents. Musk also announced updated prices for launching Starship Super Heavy. Given a propellant mass of 4,800 tons, a possible propellant cost of $100 per ton, if the vehicle can achieve a high flight rate, it could launch 150 tons for as little as $1.5 million. Taking the vehicle to Mars' surface would cost about 10 times that. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. 
questions, comments, and correction burns. Uh, so we have two corrections or, I guess, uh, a couple of elaborations. One from someone who's written into the show several times, Andrew, and then the other one from Espen. So first, first, both of these are kind of speculations, but I think they're good speculations. And they're, they're mm. actually both about Artemis human landing system, the HLS. So I'm going to start with Espen because they wrote in first. And I actually kind of like this. So this is when we were talking about um, the proposals, including abort as a positive for Dynetics, Aspen suggests that maybe this is just the way that the proposals were written. Quote, maybe Dynetics figured it would be good to mention it as a capability and the other providers didn't. If the other providers didn't mention it, then maybe NASA can't make any assumptions about capabilities and similarly couldn't give positive points for it. So that's that's an interesting uh, an interesting thought. So then Andrew kind of has thoughts on all three providers, and and I tend to agree uh, with his kind of first judgments assessment. here. <laughs> yeah, assessment, yeah. So SpaceX uh, is, quote, almost an order of magnitude beyond the other two, and, quote, lots of new technology, <laughs> a huge learning curve, agreed. Uh, quote, national team is just trying to cobble together a lot of the old space companies who have serious lobbying power, congressional connections, and constituent jobs to ensure its continued funding, end quote. Yes, correct. Uh, it's two-thirds expendable, requiring frequent resupply runs from Earth. Like every time you want to land, you have to fly mm-hmm. two-thirds of your lander back out to the moon. And then um, finally, quote, my favorite is the Dynetics design, end quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a minimal loss of mass. Uh, and easy access to the surface with just having the door close to the to the bottom of the vehicle. Also, um, Andrew uh, suggests that there might be po- uh, like modular upgrades in the future that are possible. And I think this is really an interesting idea. We haven't seen mm. any mention of this, um, but I, I think the design is pretty ripe for being able to do this in a way that the other two vehicles aren't. Although, of course, Starship doesn't give a crap. It can just anything that can fit through the door, it's good to go. So the ideas that Andrew was suggesting was, you know, an uncrewed payload version. That's, that's pretty straightforward. Um, and the fact that the access is so low means that you could deploy rovers pretty easily. Although, you know, either way you could have, um, crew members on the ground, um, just come in and unload payload. But then what's really interesting is the idea of an unpressurized version that Andrew calls a sky crane, which would allow for oversized cargo. I'm thinking crew modules. Um, so you could, you know, potentially mate them underneath the vehicle and deliver them to the surface. Uh, maybe even do like a, a real sky crane configuration, drop them on the surface and then fly the Dynetics lander, you know, off to another landing site or go straight back up to orbit. I think that's really interesting. Basically a moon helicopter. Um, and, and so, of course, you know, I think for all of us, our favorite was the Dynetics design. Yeah. Um, these are not reasons why the Dynetics design is better. Because um, we don't know that any of these are even being considered, but it does kind of uh, spark your imagination. So this week we have a really cool guest from a cool company. His name is Dan Hagel, and he's from Blue Canyon Technologies, which is not a company that I'm familiar with, but oh, really? I guess we'll learn more about that. Yeah, I'm actually Oh not. my gosh, <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing a little bit of research, obviously. So how are you doing, Dan? Very well, thank you. All right, so I guess uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and about the company, since apparently I could use a little bit of a primer. Uh, yeah, I've been in the uh, aerospace business for over 30 years, worked at a number of bigger companies. Um, some of the primes, 
uh, worked on Hubble Space Telescope, Iridium, uh, the QuickBird Worldview Imaging spacecraft that uh, take most of the pictures for Google Earth when you do your maps and such. Uh, I worked on the guidance system for those satellites. But uh, more recently, although it's been 11 years now, <laughs> seems, sounds seems recent, it all kind of flown by so quickly. Um, I helped start uh, Blue Canyon Technologies. Uh, it's a small company in Boulder, Colorado, and we specialize in small spacecraft, microsats, cubesats. Uh, we started with um, an SBIR, the Small Business Innovation Research Grant from Air Force, to develop a uh, precision attitude control system for CubeSats. And uh, CubeSat is a small satellite about the size of a loaf of bread. Um, the definition of a cube, uh, a unit, in defining the size, you know, people think about liters, milliliters, whatever, um, is uh, roughly one liter size. It's 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters cube. Right away, it was determined that, well, you can't do a whole lot with just a single U. So let's let's stack two or three of these together and see what we can do. So that came, kind of became the standard for a long time, a three U CubeSat. Uh, for our attitude control, though, we were allocated only one half U. So a 10 by 10 by 5 centimeters, um, probably less volume than a good size Rubik's Cube. So uh, we developed uh, the highest precision guidance system of its class uh, in that size or, <laughs> or quite a bit bigger. So uh, from that, we um, expanded the company uh, to take on more responsibility rather than just guidance, navigation, control, power systems, uh, thermal uh, the structure. So now we integrate full spacecraft turnkey. You come to us with a payload that you want to fly. And we'll integrate it into any number of size of spacecraft from little 3U CubeSat that weighs maybe 10 pounds up to a 350 kilogram class Espa Grande, as they call it. Um, something that'd be about the size of a dishwasher or washing machine um, and pretty much anything between. So within that, that class of satellite, uh, we're one of the leaders in the country, if not the world, in terms of numbers being produced and also the performance. So... Our guidance system, which which I uh, do the primary development for, that's my, my background, uh, is the highest performance of its class in the world. That's really what we're known for, precision, pointing, uh, high performance, small satellites. So we do a lot of work for the government, uh, commercial companies, universities, NASA, so full gamut. Richard Durden is one of the folks who helps us uh produce the show and he described you as uh, SSL for ants, which I think is, is really funny because yeah, you, you really are on, on quite a large scale. I don't know. I don't know who the biggest small sat producer is, but I, I've got a feeling it's probably planet labs. Um, and you guys are at least in the same, you know, order of magnitude in terms of production volume because you, you guys crank out and, and you've been accelerating too. you, you crank out uh, like a dozen, satellites a year if not more uh yes well actually just last year i think we did 20 and this wow. year yeah at least at mm -hmm. least that many um so we are actually moving this month um it's almost like clockwork every two years we we've grown mm -hmm. we grow so much that we have to move into new facilities so it's that time again uh so we have a new factory right now we've got uh 50 square feet of facility space um we're moving into a new factory eighty thousand square feet with more of a pushline automotive system. So we should be able to produce um, over 200 satellites per year wow. to that factory. Yeah. Wow. And comparing though to Planet, um, you know, they produce, uh, they've 
done a lot, uh, yeah, d- uh, for sure. But uh, it's all the same, pretty much the same design with slight modifications mm-hmm. with different right, generations. Right, right. But they're all relatively small, three U cube sets. Same thing off the line. Right now, we've got can't remember how many we've delivered, but right now we have cumulative orders for over ninety spacecraft, but uh, fifty different missions. So fifty different payloads. Yeah. Um, with a wide range of size of buses, again, from three U CubeSat all the way up to 350 kilogram. So you guys really are the, like the SSL or the Boeing of, of small sets. And that's, <laughs> it, it's a cool, um, yeah, it's a cool side of the industry to look at because a lot of the, we, we've talked to a lot of small sat folks, but they're all much smaller. And I, I would say, you know, mostly more experimental um, looking mm-hmm. at, you know, kind of plug and play elements instead of entire satellites so it's it's cool to get to see what the what the big folks of the small world look like (laughs) so how do you see the market i want to get into some technical stuff but since we're talking about business how do you see the market has changed in these years like when you started there was a a obviously a, a big need for uh the kind of production volume that you're doing do you see that as still you know growing so fast that other companies have uh, enough room to get in there, or do you think that the market is even as the market is growing that it's fairly saturated? Uh, yeah, it's it's um it definitely has changed. Where I see uh, a lot of growth is um, in kind of specialty, you know, data processing, uh, data fusion, whatever, machine learning, and such. Mm. Uh, more services to support a lot of the new missions. Um, I, I think back to the early days of let's say um, you know, the CubeSat workshop that Cal Poly does each year or small set conference in Logan, Utah, you know, back in the early days, all the papers were about just fundamental technology. That, oh, I've, I've developed a common filter that utilizes magnetometers and we get three degrees performance. And so-and-so says, oh, we've got a radio that'll deliver uh, 50 kilobits per second. You know, that was a big deal at the time. And, and we've got a power system that'll, you know, deliver... 20 watt hours, you know, so people just putting together pieces of, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Now it's like, you know, 100 megabits per second in a CubeSat's no big deal, mm-hmm. as opposed to that 20, 50 kilobits before. So now if you look at, go to these conferences, look at the papers, it's more around the payloads and the, the mission. Uh, startups coming in with some idea of doing some small hyperspectral, you know, then there's this proliferation of synthetic aperture radar, commercial realm. And, uh, others with uh, RF tracking and such. So it's, it's focused more on the payload side and uh, the emissions, the inter- internet of things and such. Who would you say is the majority of uh, your customers? And I guess exactly what are their needs? Um, like, is it mostly, like you said, the internet of things type of uh, thing? Like, is that what's kind of like growing now? Um, that's, that's one area of, of commercial uh, growth. There's some in, in weather. So we're supporting some commercial customers on uh, like Plan IQ, with their GPS radio occultation. Um, some really promising technology. Is that something that can be done with something like, you know, a CubeSat, or is this one of the larger washing machine size? Um, not quite washing machine size, more like <laughs> a toaster oven or a microwave size satellite. But um, not, not a CubeSat. It's hard to get the signal signal to noise that you need to get down to the troposphere with a um, small antenna that you would have on a CubeSat. But you get around, uh, like I said, toaster oven, microwave size. Uh, you can do some amazing things. But uh, what we've found, though, you know, with a, a lot of commercial companies, they, they want to do their own s- satellites. A lot of them do their own satellites. So they'll come to us for components, reaction wheels or Star Trek or something, and uh, build the rest of the satellite. 
some of the companies like uh, Capella doing synthetic aperture radar uh, come to us for the, the full attitude control system. So turnkey pointing system, the hard part to do on the satellite. Uh, but they're doing all the rest themselves, and there are other companies like that. But then on you know, government and, and NASA, then they'll come to us with a payload and say, here, you do the whole satellite, you know, the, the bus, and integrate the payload for us, help with the launch site. So it depends on, on who the customer is. We'll get a, a range of uh, requests. So let's, let's rewind a little bit and talk about um, that first propulsion element that you built. I, I guess, what, what did you start with? Like, what technologies did you uh, have to, to begin your work off of? And, and what were some of the big challenges that you had to solve? And, and how did you solve them? Um, yeah, so let me just clarify a little bit. Um, it's an attitude control or guidance system and not propulsion. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that makes more sense given... So yeah. propulsion is one of the few things we actually do not build in-house because there's right. such a variety and such a wide range of needs from customers. No one size fits all. Uh, but for the, the attitude control, yeah, that, that first product. So, um, so is that the same like ADCS that you're using today or? Yes, it actually is. It okay. has changed very little. We made some incremental improvements in parts, radiation testing. We're always screening for new parts, uh, increasing lifetime of our system. Um, adding some uh, additional software features. But basically, the, the first system delivery to now is probably 90, 95% identical. There might be a few things, again, in terms of manufacturing to make it a little easier to manufacture. It's pretty much the same system. And are those reaction wheels or CMGs? I, I don't even know what goes in there. Right. So, uh, reaction wheels, three reaction wheels, a Star Tracker, highest performance nano Star Tracker, I was class of the world. LMMs, IMU, magnetometer, sun sensor, and a single hyper-integrated electronics board, uh, not even four inches square, wow. uh, fully programmed to point for any way manageable to support any type mission, uh, deep space. The, this system is what guided the Marco CubeSats to Mars, all the way from Earth to Mars. Mm. Cool. And, and uh, surprisingly, um, those first two units those units, I should say, that went to Mars were the very first two that we delivered <laughs> as a product. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, you think it's pretty remarkable. You think about when you deliver a very first of its kind product, how many bugs and things that could go wrong. And uh, these things lasted 300 million mile journey for six months traveling from Earth to Mars. And, uh, wow. So, so flawlessly. You, yeah. So, so you founded the company, you got a Cibber grant and that grant got you to Mars. Basically, yeah. So the, the grant uh, got us to deliver or develop the product. The first customer was AFRL, Air Force Research Lab. So they were funding it. And one of the uh, aspects of the contract was, okay, you deliver one of these products to us. And then they very quickly ordered some more to go with some other satellites. But uh, JPL came along, NASA JPL, uh, said, hey, we, we need that same thing for our Mars mission. And uh, due to scheduling and such, one Air Force and the other things, JPL needed theirs. Um, we actually delivered to JPL first, and uh, others flew before those did. Uh, University of Colorado Minks program was the first to fly the attitude control. But the very first two delivered were to JPL, wow. the ones that flew to Mars. Wow, wow. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and those were the very first CubeSats to leave the orbit deep of space, Earth, right? Yeah, first uh, to leave Earth orbit, deep space interplanetary. And so are you working on any more right now? They're, they're uh, yeah, more? actually. Well, so um, the – well, now Artemis, I guess, was – called uh was you know, it's the sls space launch system the uh what was called em1 experimental mission one uh now i guess artemis one will be flying past the moon as a test 
and they will be carrying 13 6U CubeSats. Of those 13, we have hardware on 10 or 11 of those. <laughs> either, yeah, <laughs> either Star Trackers or pretty much the entire avionics uh, that we're doing including power system and stuff. Um, so tell us more about uh, your ADCS. What allows you to, to make it so freaking small? What, like, uh, how do you get electronics, like that entire control board down to four inches? Like wh what goes into this thing? So um, again, it's, it's being able to use commercial parts rather than discretized, rad hard parts that traditional aerospace has been using. Those parts can tend to be much bigger it's kind of like if if it isn't broken don't fix it so let's use these parts that have been around for 10 15 years and when they were designed they were rather large so now within uh just a single little uh not even one square one inch squared uh processor we can fit in way more capability than you could have before in multiple boards also using smaller uh, detectors with the cell phone cameras the detectors that are being developed for to support those cameras is the huge volume uh, scanners for uh, store barcode readers, just automotive production line things where going by very rapidly and it's taking a quick photograph to make sure the product is fine or oriented the right way before it goes into the next phase. There are just millions of detectors mm -hmm. that are being produced with incredible performance, a very small form factor that just didn't exist 20 years ago with a higher, much higher sensitivity than anything flying 20 years ago. So uh, right there, smaller form factor, um, the, the much higher sensitivity that allowed us to use a smaller optic than what was uh, would have been used 20 years ago. Um, so it's all about number of photons that you can collect and turning those photons into uh, electrons in your detector and amplify it into a voltage and count them and turn them into a signal. So that's how you determine what stars you're looking at or the magnitude of stars and where they are on your detector. So if you have a very high sensitivity detector, you can use a very small form factor lens. Yeah, you're collecting fewer photons, but it doesn't matter because you're going to have a good sensitivity detector and get a good signal to noise. Um, but still, it's not uh, quite as clean. Um, so there's a lot in terms of algorithms. Um, we process a much higher number of stars than normal compared to kind mm -hmm. of traditional. Partly that's just because we could, <laughs> again, the, mm -hmm. the throughput. Um, but there's a lot of clever algorithms that went into that, that eke out every bit of performance. Um, can't get into that here. Very highly proprietary. <laughs> right. But, um, <laughs> yeah, kind of secret sauce. Tell but there, us how to start our we... own company, please, Dan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, a lot of smarts that went into that, a lot of algorithms, uh, filtering techniques and things that just couldn't be done with the processors that existed 10, 15 years ago. So it allows us to eke out every bit of performance. Yeah. So, so are you also doing like software error correction to deal with, you know, having less shielding? Uh, yeah, there's a certain amount of that. Yes. Uh, inside to check for that. Right. And uh, also one thing we do, we uh, leverage extensively uh, autocode. It really cut back on the amount of software people that we needed. Software tends to be really long pole. So by integrating or leveraging autocode and uh, incorporating many more features into the normal just GNC, the command features, uh, telemetry, uh, fault protection, timekeeping, table management, all that is in autocode, uh, a unified source for all of our products. So again, everything we did mechanically was designed for high volume manufacturing. 
things we did algorithmically and software-wise also designed for high volume um, from a production standpoint, rather than spinning off separate groups to kind of rebuild and reinvent the same code over and over again. And all that fits inside a little package. So getting back to some of the features, things we did. So the Star Tracker was one of the, the key things. Uh, but the reaction was, how do you make a precision spinning device that uh, can fit in a small package? And we started look, looking at little motors from third-party companies and then trying to attach a flywheel to it. But motors that small were just garbage. They would just fall apart and just they weren't designed for that. Or they were designed for super high speed, uh, like a um, uh, the motor for a, um, a drill at a dentist. You know, just mm -hmm. very small, but just really high speed. Uh, not much for fine control. So we had to design our own motors. So we, that's where we did have to learn a little bit. And how do you make something that's designed or that'll support uh, a wide range of very well-controlled speeds in order to provide that very smooth pointing that a satellite needs? So it's a, a bit of IP in, in that area as well. So the reaction wheels and Star Tracker, those are the key devices. And uh, you know, just finding parts. We, we've spent millions of dollars screening commercial parts, automotive parts, to get the radiation tolerance up on our products. Uh, we're just continually, continually testing for radiation. So so do you find that some products just are, are naturally better at handling high radiation environments or are people unintentionally constructing their uh, their COTS products with shielding built in for other reasons? Um, well, maybe not quite what you said, but it, they do tend to naturally, just the manufacturing techniques today uh, in general, produce really good parts that just by their very nature are do really well from, let's say, uh, the total ionized dose side, uh, which is the, uh, you know, the wear out aspect, the aging from radiation just kind of wears things down. Um, things do pretty well for the most part, most parts. The other, other area is, uh, you know, the high energy, heavier particles, protons, heavy ions and such. That's where you get a really big difference in, in parts and some manufacturing techniques do a really good job others really poorly <laughs> so you'll have uh, things that fail and you'll have a destructive latch up and you know you never get it back doesn't matter how many times you power cycle it's gone and others do really well surprisingly but that's that's kind of key you just have to do a whole lot of testing to find those parts going back to uh, the marco satellites were those commercial off-the-shelf type parts or was that something more special since it was no it's, it's all the same yeah we've not designed anything special for deep space uh, and, and even then that was some of our earlier stuff we've made our yeah. system even much more tolerant since then that's actually really exciting i did you know we all know about marco and we've all you know kind of marveled at at this accomplishment, but it's really cool to hear little, little pieces and little stories coming together, uh, sort of after the fact. So that that's pretty cool. So while we're talking about attitude control, you also make super tiny control moment gyroscopes too. Is that right? Not super small. We actually are making some larger ones for oh, okay, like you know, five hundred kilogram class satellites. The benefit of going really small starts to fade as you get. Well, as you get smaller, there's always a finite amount of extra volume required to make a CMG work. I mean, a CMG, for those who don't know, um, is a, uh, a gimbaled reactual. A reactual is just a fixed motor and a flywheel, just like a, a bicycle wheel. You spin it up, and as um, it, if you want, I should say, is you know, action reaction, like a, you pop a wheelie in a bike, you, you pedal hard, the bicycle will pop up and give you a wheelie, you know, so it's action reaction. Whereas with a CMG, uh, it's a 
constant rate spinning device, let's say 6,000 RPM, but you get the torque by changing the direction of the, that momentum vector. So you can either change the length of it by applying a torque about the spin axis, or you can change the direction of it, and that gives you torque as well. The difficulty there is all the algorithms, as you're changing all the directions of these momentum vectors, uh, it gets very complicated. You can get what's called gimbal locks, singularities, whatever. So a lot of smarts as to how to implement those. But the point is, if you have a spinning rotor, you can have a relatively small motor to go with it. But now if you want to change the direction of that wheel, first of all, it's now going to sweep out a sphere, uh, whereas before it's more like a pancake. Now you have to worry about the fact that it's going to rotate. That pancake is not rotating around. It's going to take up a whole sphere, a little mini globe. So now you have to have more volume, just the fact that it, that's rotating. But then there's the uh, bearings and the motor and usually a very high precision rotation measurement device to keep track of exactly where that uh, momentum vector is. So that's how you get very smooth pointing is to be able to very precisely change that direction. And that requires some fairly complex sensors and, again, very precise motors. And that adds an enormous amount of extra volume. So if you then compare, like, uh, for a CubeSat size, how big those CMGs would need to be, and then you say, well, I can just use that same volume for a reaction. Well, you can get a reaction right. that's almost as good uh, and a heck of a lot cheaper, and it's going to be a lot smoother, too, because it's going to be almost impossible to get very smooth control out of a CMG that small. Oh, why is that? Uh, it's just because of the nature, like I said, being able to measure the rotation. I mean, you're trying to control this thing to just a ridiculously tight tolerance as you rotate it around. Sure. Yeah. And I guess you're you're moving shorter distances, as it were, than, you know, you're rotating fewer degrees, whereas uh, like a reaction wheel, you know, it's already spinning at, you know, a thousand RPM or whatever, and you're just spinning it a little bit extra. Whereas with a CMG, it's, you know, in some instances, not rotating. And then you're having to change, you know, change that axis that wasn't moving. Now you're changing that axis by like half a degree, right? So yeah, not even that, like a fraction, like a few microradians type number. Wow, you okay. know, it's like okay. very, very, yeah. yeah but right, you're right, sense. because a reactual, it's much easier. You can apply a small voltage change and get a very gentle uh, yeah. wheel speed change, small torque in a reactual. But to get that small, gentle torque out of a CMG requires very precise control, a few microradians or 10 microradians yeah. of motion of that axis. And yeah, it has to happen sense. on, let's say, all four of them at the same time to balance it to make it to get the actual resultant direction. Whereas with three orthogonal wheels, you torque one of them, let's say you want to change the pitch axis, you tweak just the pitch wheel. With CMGs, if you want to do, uh, let's say, the, the pitch with a CMG configuration, you may end up having to move all four of them to get just yeah. the axis you want. So uh, you, you correct me to say that you're actually making larger CMGs in, th in this context, um, but in the overall space context, are these how do these compare size-wise to what else is on the market? I mean, obviously, we're not talking about, you know, ISS size CMGs. Right. They, they are significantly smaller um, than traditional spacecraft. So let's say um, like the worldview imaging spacecraft, you know, comparison is maybe one fifth the size of those, I think, and some others that other bigger companies do. They're still small, but um, yeah. not like, uh, you know, CubeSat or even <laughs> right, uh, right. ESMA class. It's, you're going to need a decent sized spacecraft to really make use of it. It's interesting how that changes with context. So, yeah. um, to us, it's huge. Like, oh, my, right, right. enormous <laughs> spacecraft. <laughs> so uh, Richard in the chat asks a really good question. Do smaller reaction wheels 
saturate more frequently than larger ones? If it's operated correctly, if you've done the system engineering up front, no, because um, the reactor wheels will typically be sized for the inertia properties of the spacecraft. So we have a line of reaction wheels. We, the smallest one we make is 15 millinewton meter seconds, and then 50, 100, uh, 500, then a full one newton meter second, four and eight. So those will span from, let's say, like, like I said, a uh, five kilogram CubeSat all the way up to a 500 kilogram spacecraft. So if you've done the trades right, things are going to be pretty well balanced. So at, at your max slew rate, your wheels would still cap out at the usual 6,000 RPM. So, no, if, if things are done right, trades are done correctly, then they'll saturate no more often than on a regular spacecraft. And, and is that also true of CMGs? Uh, correct, yeah. And that's even harder to do, yeah, just given all the, the singularity avoidance and things like that to worry about. So you mentioned working for uh, the Air Force Research Lab, and you a notable vehicle that you built, I don't know if you've built more than one vehicle, but the vehicle that I know that you built for them uh, is S5, a uh, small satellite space surveillance system. And I think that's actually the satellite that's featured like on your homepage, right? Yeah, it might be. There are a number of, yeah, I think that's probably one that's at least been there for a while, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, right, and that... Um, uh, for uh, yes, space situational awareness to track other objects up in space operates up uh, at, at geo geostationary orbit. A little different, so um, it was very unique in being able to uh, build a satellite of that quality, that capability um, in a relatively short time. It was uh, like eighteen months, I think, or less than that, and uh, to operate at geo in uh, such a cost constrained budget. Very, very good uh, experience there. And what do you call the platform that S5 is on? Well, that was a little more unique uh, structure design. It was okay. very constrained in volume. I mentioned the commonality you know, with software and our, uh, you know, the Star Tracker GNC. We do have a range of reactuals, but all the processing, the algorithms, you know, our avionics, it's all very standard. Uh, and what tends to change is just the size, the form factor of the structure that holds it. So we have a, a line of buses. We have our CubeSat uh, buses, 3U, 6U, 12U. And then when we get above that, uh, we have what we're calling our XSAT. Uh, everything tends to have an X <laughs> with our company. Um, it's just the way it started with our product naming. So, um, but XSAT, and we have our Mercury class, which is kind of a, oh, I believe like a, maybe a 15 by 15 centimeter by excuse me, 15 by 15 inch, uh, I should be using metric here, maybe 30 by 30 centimeter by maybe 60 centimeter tall. So something in between ESPA class and uh, CubeSat. And then we have a regular standard ESPA, that's our XSAT Venus. And then of course, following the trend, um, our XSAT Mercury, uh, or excuse me, XSAT Saturn, uh, more of a grande class, um, much more power, larger deck. But it uses all the same avionics, and um, hmm. uh, <clears throat> just different size actuators and, and bigger power systems. But to get back to your S, uh, S5 question, that'd be more closely aligned with our current XSAT uh, Venus class, which is a, pretty much a standard ESPA. So uh, Richard in the chat, he's, uh, like I said, he's one of our producers and he's really cranking these questions out and they're really good. Um, <laughs> but he wanted us to ask about your company name. Is, is there a fun story behind it? <laughs> We, we keep telling our CEO he needs to come up with a better story. But um, so um, as I understand, uh, in, in Colorado, there is a place that's really 
beautiful to hike and fish called Black, Can- Black Canyon of the Gunnison. So when he was starting the company, uh, he was thinking, that'd be, that's kind of a cool name, Black Canyon. But at the time, he actually didn't know what the products, what the focus of the company was going to be, possibly even green energy and things like that. So Black just kind of had a bad connotation to it. So I was like, well, let's, let's say Blue Canyon. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> so starting with one of his favorite places, Black Canyon, and changing it to blue. It puts me in mind of Wind River, which is not you know not a bad company to be associated with, I guess. Then another question from Richard. Uh, he wants to know about uh, space debris mitigation. So, like with some of your larger constellations, do you have anything in place to bring those back down, or is uh, that not a concern? So most of our missions are low enough altitude that they will come back down on their own couple aspects. So with, with debris, um, there are two, two areas where you have to worry about. You, just, you don't want to leave garbage up there that could get hit and create this Kessler syndrome where it's like a nuclear reaction, a fission reaction where you just have more and more things breaking up and mm-hmm. have a, a cloud of debris that you can't fly through. Uh, the other is when things come down um, and burn up, you don't want parts that could hit people. So um, most of our things are launched to a low enough altitude that they will come down within the mandatory 25-year period. Now, FCC is looking at making it even less, requiring propulsion to make sure things come down even faster. But that kind of got put on uh, hiatus. Uh, a lot of people are pushing back that really can put a damper on things. But uh, as long as you launch below 600 kilometers, it'll come down within 25 years. And um, uh, then above that, then we do have propulsion in our designs to make sure that we can uh, either bring it all the way down to where it burns up or well below that 600 kilometer point where it'll decay on its own due to atmospheric drag. And then if there is something that where it's big enough piece where you're worried about people getting hit with debris, then you do what's called a controlled reentry, where you have a big enough, powerful enough propulsion system that you can control where you do your final burn and inject it such that it lands in the water. In the ocean. So I actually read uh, Richard's question a little differently than the way that David did, because I, I think he's talking about uh, large constellations and doing, you know, on-orbit debris avoidance. So um, we are uh, we're one of the bus providers selected by DARPA for Blackjack. Um, so we're looking to be producing a number of those buses. And uh, there is a, a lot of propulsion on board for that to make sure that we, you know, be able to when we launch, raise up to the desired altitude and then bring it back down again to dispose. And there's plenty of extra propellant in there to do any kind of avoidance. So if there is, if you know well enough or enough ahead of time, you can do burns to raise or lower your altitude to avoid it. The problem is, do you know, I mean, how quickly do you know? And uh, a lot of that has to do with the uncertainty of measurements on board, we'll know where we are very accurately, but let's say it's some defunct satellite that's being tracked maybe once a week or once every couple of weeks by you know the, the Air Force. And because of the infrequency of the updates, you have what's called an error ellipse around it. And maybe that's a one kilometer ellipse at the longest point, maybe it's 10 kilometers. So that, that makes a big difference. So if you say, hey, there's a conjunction possibility, then you go and you look some more and say, well, geez, given it's a 10 kilometer ellipse we we could act now but maybe it's not going to happen so we're just going to waste fuel by moving and have to put it back again let's wait a little longer you know and get some more refined measurements and hopefully that air ellipse ellipse will come down and then we won't have to move and then you also want to make sure that it's defined well enough so that when you do make your move that 
you're not moving in the wrong direction. You know, <laughs> it could get updated and say, oh, it's the error of the ellipse has yeah. changed directions. And now you just move yourself into harm's way. Right, right. Um, but there is, as more and more satellites get, or, you know, get launched, yeah, there's just more tasking that has happened, more conjunction possibilities and more moving. But there'll be plenty of propulsion on board to make sure we don't collide. So, uh I guess we can talk about a, a future project. I think it was fairly recently, in the last six months, it was announced that um, you guys are building uh, a platform for maiden space. They're going to be doing a solar panel in space construction, uh, a construction demo. And, yes. and you guys are, you're building the bus for it or like how much of that are you, are you doing? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we're providing the bus again, uh, for those not familiar with the terms with a, the satellite, you've got the, the bus and then the payload, and that's all being maybe considered a space vehicle or satellite. Just like a, a bus that you ride on on the ground uh, can carry <laughs> school children or a rock band or commuter, commuters traveling. Um, you know, it still has the same features. You've got power, you've got uh, steering, brakes, and room to put things. So that's that's what we do with spacecraft buses. You can hold any type of payload. So, um, yeah, it's... it's uh, in this case, it's this uh, spaceborne manufacturing, and uh, yeah, it'll be very exciting to see see that uh, see that happen. It will produce solar panels in space, rather large, something that's much very. It would be very difficult to launch uh, something that big. It'd be very uh, interesting to see that happen. So, can we talk about your personal educational background? I think one of the most common questions that we get from uh, from young listeners is, "I want to go into space. What do I have to do?" Um, so I, I'd love if you could kind of give us an idea of what you wanted to do when you were going into college and how you wound up where you are now. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm one of those few lucky people who knew what I wanted to do very early age. I built my first model rocket when I was five years old, you know, type of little model, little basic gunpowder type formula engine, Estes rockets. Um, and then model airplanes. And I was always building and designing my own airplanes and rockets and, uh, even trying to figure out how to guide them better. You know? mm. <laughs> That's what I went into when I got into college. Uh, uh, aerospace engineering. I got my undergrad at uh, Arizona State University. Uh, so I, I grew up in the in Tempe area. Went from kindergarten through college, living in the same house there. And mm. um, Arizona State was just down the road from where I lived. But it was great living in Arizona because it's very calm there. A lot of open fields. Uh, very little wind. So I was able to launch rockets all the time. I live in Colorado now. It's a lot more difficult to do that. It's a lot more windy right. here. But um, so uh, it was actually funny because I was really leaning toward computational aerodynamics at the time. And um, I actually only had one course in uh, in control theory. Got an A in it, but I was like, eh, it was okay. And then I went to work at uh, Lockheed in Sunnyvale. And um in getting my master's there, they uh, had a honors co-op program where they actually pay for you to go through Stanford. So I got my master's there and ended up switching by chain of events. I'll not bore you with um, to focus on controls. Uh, it was actually by working on the Hubble Space Telescope program at the time in the controls group that led me that path, and uh, that was just a real life changer. Uh, really changed the whole direction. So, yeah, I got my master's there and uh, worked a number of different programs uh, doing guidance control. Gravity Probe B, I was an uh, attitude control lead on, on that program oh, cool. for the few years I was there. I mentioned Iridium, number of programs at Evolve uh, Aerospace as well when I was there. But um, for those wanting, it, it really depends on, on what discipline you want. Some people are inclined toward mechanical uh, engineering, uh, electrical engineering, 
control theory. It all depends on what, what your interests are. But one of the things that I would stress and I, I tell younger people is to learn as much about the other guy's job as you can. I mean, don't, uh -huh. don't neglect your own job, but learn what the other guy does so that you can figure out what's, what's the difference. How do I interface? So with me personally, when you know dealing with these algorithms, so we come up with this PID controller that's going to point the satellite uh, a certain way. Where does that go? I know it goes, we hand it off to the software people, but what happens to that? <laughs> and um, so uh, finding out, okay, what, what's this, the software process and, and, and how do I talk to a gyro? How does it, I know that I'm getting this gyro signal in, it's in my little black diagram, but how physically <laughs> does that happen? What, what are these, what's a 422 interface? What is that? What's, what's 1553, you know? And then understanding the programming techniques and uh, data storage and how processors work. And then uh, mechanical guys, you know, the fact that um, uh, you have flexible things on the spacecraft flopping around that affects your control system. Well, how do the mechanical guys model these flexible modes? How can I work with them to best convey what I need in terms of a stiff spacecraft? And laying out components, sun sensors go here, magnetometer needs to go over there, all that. So you don't have to be the expert, but you need to know enough about what the other person is doing to make educated uh, questions and and just know if what they're telling you is, is right. You know, even though I'm not an expert in some areas, I, I know enough where someone will say, "Oh, it's this X Y Z," and I'm like, "No, I don't think you're right on that." You know, and go talk to someone else, and they'll say, oh, "Yeah, it's, it's wrong. It should be W Z T." You know. All right. Well, Dan, it's it's been fantastic talking to you. As we wrap up here, we have two traditional final questions. So our penultimate question uh, is, where would you like to be found on the internet? Well, um, I would defer to our PR lead, Haley Bell, who was coordinating all this. So she's handles all Twitter and public relations. So I would defer yeah. to her. So then what I have is I've got three links. Uh, one is bluecanyontech.com. And yes. then your Instagram and Twitter feeds are both Blue Canyon Tech. So our traditional final question is, if you had a chance to go to space, what's one object you would bring with you? Um, I guess a really good camera to capture it all. Mm. You, you want to look out the window and be able to take photos. Yeah, right. Other things came to mind. I was trying to think of some souvenir or something you know, for family members. I know... Um, well, some astronauts, some people have taken up like a roll of coins or something they can hand out to people and say, this has been yeah. in space. Um, yeah. uh, I don't know. I guess it'd be a little bit more selfish when I take all kinds of pictures. I can just remember. Well, hey, I mean, you can share photos with more people than you can share coins with. Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute delight to, to get to hear from you today. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have six winners, so quite a few. So we have Ben Hallert, Coaster Gallery, Cy Kyle, Evan Cook, Law Loving, and The Greek. So a lot of people there. Yeah, and Ben Hallert guessed while we were still recording the show yesterday or last week. So really, <laughs> really fast uh, trigger finger on that guy. And the clue was pew, pew, boom, <laughs> which, um, yeah, good clue. So pew, pew, boom, I thought had something to do with perhaps the Star Wars program because it kind of reminds me of like, you know, lasers or guns in space, something like that. Um, and this is kind of, a, you know, adjacent to that. So I guess I wasn't completely wrong or yeah. I was kind of on the right track, but I was still wrong. So yeah, absolutely. All right. So this week in spaceflight history is the 15th of May, 1987. It was the failed launch of Polyus Skiff. So Polyus was a military satellite killer. It was uh, 37 meters in length. 4.1 meters in diameter 
and weighed about 80 metric tons. It was built on a surplus TKS, which, you know, is the predecessor to Zarya. Um, and it actually flew three or four times, never with crew on board, um, but I believe it did actually dock with um, a couple of Salyut stations. Um, and TKS was interesting because it actually had an atmospheric return capsule stacked on top of it. So Polyus, uh, you know, built on a, uh, on a module that eventually got installed on the International Space Station. Polyus would have been the first module of a civilian science station called Mir 2, at least if you believe what was painted on the side of it, because uh, it was uh, dressed up in black livery, which we'll talk about in a sec, um, with words painted on it. On one side, it said Polyus. On the other side, it said uh, Mir 2. And I don't think it ever would have made it to a civilian science station. Um, it might have been the start of a new military science station, though. In any event, had it been successful, it would have been a really excellent response to the U.S. Star Wars program, because this thing really was kitted out. Um, so remember, the International Space Treaty says that you're not allowed to deploy space weapons, but it doesn't say you're not allowed to test them, thanks to uh, Air and Space uh, magazine. Uh, for a really excellent article. It'll be linked in the show notes, but they, uh, they pointed out this little loophole. Hmm. So, uh, there, there's an excellent article written by, uh, Aaron Space Mag, the Aaron Space Museum magazine. Right. It was published there. It was actually written by, um, somebody who has their own blog. It's, uh, Dwayne Day and, and Robert Kennedy. And it's a really fantastic article. It'll be linked in the show notes. And they point out that the, uh, the ABM treaty, the anti-ballistic missile treaty, of 1972 forbade the deployment of anti-missile weapons, but not the uh, the testing or development. So that's kind of a little uh, loophole. Both uh, the U.S. and Russia used that loophole. But anyway, um, Polyus really would have been a very capable vehicle had it made it to orbit and had it actually worked uh, properly. We we don't know how successful their tests would have been. But the entire thing, like I said, was painted black. And the black was actually a light, uh, a highly absorbent black. So it absorbed light we know, and likely also absorbed radar, um, which is pretty crazy. It had a megawatt class CO2 laser. It's half as powerful as some of the lasers that the U.S. was testing at the time, um, but still uh, powerful enough to do some damage if you can actually um, sight it properly. Because, um, of course, you know, uh, lasers are always tough in space because they generate so much heat. And the CO2 laser that they were using actually um, needed to vent hot CO2 after firing or maybe even during firing, because that was one of the problems was keeping the thing focused on mm -hmm. its target uh, while it vented. Um, not only did it have a laser for offense, it had a more traditional reaction cannon uh, for defense to, I guess, uh, you know, the best defense is a good offense uh, to be able to shoot at <laughs> anybody coming near it. Um, and then it also had a laser protection system. So, you know, it absorbs light so you can't see it. But unfortunately, that means that it's really good at soaking up <laughs> powerful photons from uh, from other beam weapons. And so uh, it actually had tanks of barium on board that it could use almost as chaff. Uh, the idea was a barium cloud might soak up uh, enough energy from a laser to make it really hard to shoot through the cloud. And so it had barium clouds to to do some testing to see if that would actually work. 
It also had some interesting um, uh, no radio communication abilities, basically a mirror um, to be able to uh, do some testing from the ground without having to announce the results via radio. So uh, Polyus, also known as Polyus Skiff, I think Skiff refers to the uh, to the laser. Polyus was launched on Energia. I think we all love the Energia launcher. Um, it was the vehicle originally designed to launch Buran. Um, so remember, we talk about uh, Energia Buran as a, sh- a copy of the shuttle, but that, that's really not what it was. I mean, it had very different capabilities. They just happened to use the same uh, exterior because they knew that it worked because the U.S. had already tested it. Um, but shuttle STS acts as a unified launcher. Um, Buran was its own vehicle, and the launcher, Energia, was was developed separately. Because remember, Energia um, not only had boosters on the side, similar to the look of Shuttle, but it actually had... Well, so first off, the, the boosters only looked like the Shuttle boosters. They were actually liquid-fueled. And then what we call the ET, the external tank of the shuttle, was actually its own rocket. It had uh, engines on the bottom. And so the Energia launcher all on its own could actually launch to orbit in a way that the shuttle external tank and solid rocket boosters wouldn't have been able to. So Energia was designed to launch Buran, but it actually finished development before Buran. So I want, I want to talk about a cool thing before I get off of Energia. Did you guys know that there was a later version of Energia plan that was going to be fully reusable? The boosters would fly back and then the core stage would also fly back with wings? Mm, no, I did I not did know about not that. Know that. Yeah, it's very cool. I mean, you know, Shuttle had um, potential alternate versions that would do the same thing. But none of them were planned as successors to the shuttle. They were just versions that weren't selected. And so Energia mm-hmm. could be upgraded to be fully reusable. Really cool. So anyway, uh, Energia finished development before Burian was ready. And they wanted to get Energia tested ASAFP. And in particular, it needed a side-mounted payload. You know, it, it didn't have a payload fairing on top. And so uh, Polyus was kind of in the right stage of development, i.e., very early on <laughs> to be able to um, turn it into a side mounted payload. And that's exactly what they did. Um, they did it very quickly. Um, depending on how you count it, it, it was developed in about a year. And the original plans had to be heavily modified, particularly to be able to allow it to fly as a side mounted payload. The biggest modification, I think everybody uh, who guessed knows what I'm about to say. Um, it was mounted upside down. The reason is, like Zarya, it's made of two sections, the 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 functional uh, segment uh, and then the cargo segment. So it's called the functional cargo block. And I believe that's a reference to the two sections. The service module, the, the functional uh, block, the, the functional segment was designed to fly inside of a payload fairing. And so it was delicate enough that it couldn't be mounted so close to the engines of the energy uh, core stage. So they had to mount the whole thing upside down. And, you know, in order to do that, they had to design new new aerodynamic shields that got deployed or jettisoned. Um, but, you know, they're going to have to do that anyway, since it wasn't flying inside of a payload fairing. So they mount this thing upside down um, so that it can survive the uh, the vibration at max Q. Um, and you you might be able to intuit that if you mount 
a, uh, a payload upside down. You need to flip it right side back up before it does its orbital insertion burn. So the Polyuse vehicle was supposed to detach from Energia at 110 kilometers, uh, 460 seconds into the flight. It separates and then it yaws 180 degrees, then it rolls 90 degrees, then it jettisons its protective covers and then lights up its engines and proceeds onto orbit. Well, so uh, this vehicle was rushed into production and um, they actually just stole a lot of equipment off of other programs. Um, one of the things that they that they nabbed was the inertial guidance package from a Cosmos. Unfortunately, they didn't have enough time to test it properly, and there was a software issue that they missed. So um, the thing successfully yawed 180 degrees, but then didn't stop yawing. So it actually <laughs> um, kept those yaw engines firing until it had turned a full 360 degrees. Then it did its 90 degree roll and then fired up the engines. So I, I've heard the story told a couple of different ways, and I'm not 100% sure if it got up to 180 degrees, decided it was in the right place, but never shut down the yaw engines. Um, and so kept roll or kept yawing around uh, while it did its 90 degree roll and then deployed uh, it's, uh, it's aerodynamic fairings. Or if it went a full 360 degrees, stopped on, you know, stopped on a dime and then did the rest of its thing. I, I'm not 100% sure. But in any event, we know that it was facing the wrong way when it fired up those engines. And uh, I, I don't know if you guys know this, this is pretty complicated, but if you fire your engines in the prograde direction, it pushes you retrograde. And that's basically the most effective way to deorbit your spacecraft. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yep. yeah. So the thing, uh, you know, not only didn't make it to orbit, but it did its best to run away from orbital velocity. <laughs> and that's the most Kerbal Space Program launch failure of all time. I mean, it's it's just incredible. There was that other instance, which was very similar, and I think it was with a similar inertial guidance module from, I don't remember what, but remember when proton. they had installed it? Yeah, Proton, and they had uh, installed it upside down, upside I think. Upside down. Um, yeah. And the whole thing. So this is something that like seems to be a recurring theme with Russian vehicles, that uh, they have some guidance issues. Yeah, but to, to be clear, it was installed properly. It was a software issue. Shoot. But yeah, it's same yeah. same uh, same end result, right? <laughs> yeah, that that was the uh, the BFRC, right? The big uh, yeah fuming red cloud. All right, and then our clue for next week is next week in two thousand, no stones thrown. No stones thrown. Okay. <laughs> Say that one three times fast. So if you know what that is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Moving right along to upcoming spaceflight events. This week we do have two launches, so that's good. Um, what's that first one, Dennis? Uh oh, first up we'll have an Atlas V taking the uh, OTV orbital test vehicle six, which is the the mission for the uh, X-37B, you know, secret shuttle looking uncrewed. Mm -hmm. Uh, plane, space plane, but uh, we have a lot more information uh, of what kind of uh, experiments are on board. And so uh, it's pretty cool. Check that out if you're interested in kind of reading up uh, what's going to be on there. But uh, that's getting launched along with a uh, Falcon Sat 8 satellite, which is a, um, it's a microsat that is basically a, it's, it's an educational platform that uh, academy students in the U.S. Air Force Academy go and basically uh, develop and uh, fly experiments on. And so uh, it's really cool stuff. And so this uh, Atlas V launch will take place on May 16th uh, with a launch window from 1200 to 1430 UTC, uh, which is 8 to 1030 uh, 
Eastern Daylight Time for anybody on the East Coast. And it'll be flying out of uh, Slick 41 at the Cape. All right. And then the next launch is uh, on May 17th, and that's a Falcon 9 launching Starlink 7. So this is the seventh launch, or I guess uh, the eighth technically. Uh, so that's launching out of Slick 40 at Cape Canaveral as usual. That is at 0800 UTC or 4 a.m. on the East Coast. So, you know, it's kind of an early launch. You might not catch that one. But I mean, like if you're up at that hour, go ahead and keep an eye out. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, pretty routine launch. So this is another batch of 60 satellites. And I don't know what that brings up to now. Somewhere like 400 and 70, something like that, I think, but hmm. getting pretty close to 500 now. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see that train. Well, at that launch time, that means an opportunity for a lot of people in the U.S. to maybe actually see it on its first yeah. kind of go around. They just might. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So let's go ahead and deorbit the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.